he does he is constantly looking up and you kind of look at him and go low eye contact jesus do you feel like he looks a little like me i think he looks a little like me like look at his nose like we have oh. a similar <laughs> nose you know what? Before I was just thinking, come on, man, that looks like Jesus. And then you said nose, and now the I'm no- all... Look yep. at the nose and the big yep. lip. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to The Debrief, a weekly podcast from your friends here at Sandals Church, where we get real answers to your tough questions about the Bible from our good old Pastor Matt. I am your friend, the PRD, Justin Pardee, right here. We got Pastor Matt in the corner. The PMB. And now uh, we're back down to Stephanie holding it down for all the ladies. That's right, ladies. I'm, I'm here to... Do our, do our best. Try yep. to keep these guys in line. Exactly. We're going to have a little quinoa with our salad. <laughs> it's, that's right. And uh, some inspiration, too, at the end of the show. It's going yes. to be a good yeah. one. Well, listen, we love having you guys tune in every single week. We tackle your questions that you send in. So if you've got a question that you want to get on the show, look us up on Facebook. Just find the Debrief Podcast. Send us a message. We would be happy to receive those questions. Get them here in front of Pastor Matt. The only thing you guys know uh, that makes us happier than those questions getting sent in is your beautiful five-star reviews from the iTunes store. We got a couple of great ones. This one comes from Frank Blanket 91 Great name. The debrief is like my coffee addiction. It's much healthier though, and I wasn't able to listen to it for a few days driving to and from work. I felt a little cranky. I'm back on it now, and I feel much better. Please keep the good stuff coming. Thank you, Mr. Yeah, Blanket. We got you, Frank. Yeah, we're Welcome happy back. We're happy to uh, support that addiction. Uh, one more. This this uh, review came in from our Facebook page from Rustin. says, love listening to The Debrief. I live in Amarillo, Texas. I've watched every sermon in 252 and been listening to The Debrief, which is awesome. I wake up at 3.30 a.m. and drive a lot, so having y'all to listen to and share the gospel is awesome. It helps keep me awake. Amen. I love that he said y'all. Like, that exactly. just really verified his Texan-ness. We're happy to keep you awake right now. Listen, Rustin, just want to encourage you to uh, crank up that air conditioning, put it mm-hmm. full blast on your face so that you just stay nice, alert, yeah. and focused on that road. Yeah, yep. we don't want you to go to Jesus just yet. <laughs> That's right. You got to at least get through the 252 series so you got the full experience of the Sandal Church 2016. These guys are looking at me behind the microphones like I just wished your early death. I Love want it. you to know, Rustin, that is not what I was doing. Just was uh, throwing some thoughts out there. Now, the uh, only thing that we like even more than five-star reviews are, you know what that is, Stephanie? Well, now I don't. It's when people rep the debrief debrief shirts. You're right. Exactly. (laughs) So, hey, we've got uh, a bunch of those debrief shirts and stickers hanging out. You guys know, uh, if you've been listening for a while, we're doing that so that we can uh, raise some funds because the debrief was not in the budget for Sandals Church this year. Uh, We're trying to raise some extra income so that we can help increase the quality of the podcast. I have really, really good news, which is this. All we need to do is sell 26 more shirts till we break even, and then we're in the money. Yeah. Are you and speaking of which, can I give a shout out to my mom? Oh yeah, do it. Yeah, so my mom, thanks mom, uh, she uh, sent us 2500 bucks for the debrief because Amazing. my grandmother passed away and my grandma and grandpa loved the Lord and they wanted part of their estate to go to Jesus projects when they died. And so my mom has selected to use some of that money from their estate uh, and she sent it our way. Boom. And, uh, so thanks mom, uh, love grandma and grandpa and I appreciate their faithfulness and that not only did they uh, honor Jesus in life, but they honored him in death. So love you mom. Uh, 
Matt's mom, I just want you to know, producer Kelly's over there in the background, and he's got some thumbs up and some happy cheeks because he's very <laughs> excited about buying some new audio equipment to help make yeah. this even better. So listen, if you are going to be at a Sandal Church campus any of the next couple of weekends mm-hmm. and uh, you see one of those debrief shirts, do us a favor, pick one of those up so that we can uh, do what we can to make the show even better. Awesome. All right, Pastor Matt, you ready to jump into some questions? Absolutely. Okay, so we got some follow-up questions from the last couple of episodes, and in a little bit, we're going to get to Acts chapter 13, but we will start here with some follow-up. This first question comes from Christy. Yeah, so Christy says, I grew up in the church always hearing Romans eight thirty-five through 38, which says that nothing could ever separate us from God as believers. And then she says, my mom was a believer and served, leading women's Bible studies and volunteering. She was such a strong influence on me and such a picture of true faith. But after her divorce from my abusive stepfather, she fell away from the church because people in the church told her to pray for him and not to divorce him. My question is, once we become Christians, can we be separated from God if we ever fall away? Or are we forever tethered to him, even if we're living in sin without repentance? Yeah, so great question. And I'm sorry to hear about what your mom went through. Mm-hmm. So we have to be careful that we don't equate works serving the church with a real relationship with God. There are very, very many people that do uh, acts of charity for all kinds of reasons. So it doesn't mean that a person is saved simply because they work hard at serving the church. Now, certainly I would argue that it's hard to say that you love Jesus if you never serve the church, but but evidence of work doesn't mean that there's evidence of salvation. So I don't know that you're, I don't know your mom personally. I don't know your situation, but I can say this, that the church is divided on this issue. Um, the church, some, some churches teach that you can fall away, so to speak from your salvation and others teach and preach, uh, uh, once saved, always saved. And those are kind of the two core doctrines. And the reason that there's disagreement in the church is because really there's two trains of thought. So we have, uh, the Pauling understanding, the apostle Paul and everything in his writing seems to indicate that, you know, once we are saved, we are transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, and there's no going back. So where do people get this idea and understanding of that somehow that can change? It comes from Hebrews chapter 6 and Hebrews chapter 10. Hmm. In those two chapters, and we don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews, uh, for the early part of the church, they thought it was Paul, but then later, pretty quickly, um, people realized that this is probably not Paul, and and I'm not, I, I don't know who wrote it. So, But anyways, the author of Hebrews seems to clearly indicate that we um, can taste of the Holy Spirit. We can experience God and can in some way slip away from that. And so this is what I would say is um, people who uh, feel totally secure in their relationship with God and um, never ever worry about falling away from God, I think those are the people that worry. The people who are, um, you know, worried about it all the time, those are the people that need to rest in their security. So what I what I believe is the Bible teaches that we are secure. I don't worry about losing my salvation. I'm secure in Christ. I, I believe that. Um, and that's where I think Romans 8 says, nothing can separate me from the love of Christ. And that includes my own stupidity. Um, and so, you know, I don't know if your mom was saved, but I believe this, that if your mom truly was a child of God, she will remain a child of God forever. And I think that that is what scripture says. Now, however, I don't think we should be abusive and um, just consciously decide to just run from our faith and enter into a life of sin because the book of Hebrews indicates that it's impossible for a true child of God to live a life of sin, an unrepentant life of sin, because that is no longer who you are. It doesn't mean that you won't make mistakes, fall into sin, get caught up in it. But if you are a Christian and you get into sin, and I know this in my life because I get into sin, I fall into sin in actions and thoughts, you know, uh, sometimes by not doing things and it grieves my heart. It hurts my heart. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like a, like a spiritual flu. It kills me because I am a child of God and I need to come back and repent and seek forgiveness and get right. People who don't have that, who don't have this 
um, feeling of grieving the spirit of God within them, they probably weren't ever a child of God. So I can't speak to every, I think it's dangerous to speak to situations that we're not a part of. Uh, I'm sad that your mom um, was in that kind of relationship and felt like she needed to get out. Uh, I don't know the church. I don't know the situation, so I don't want to badmouth them. Yeah. So I just need to stick to theological terms. The church is divided on the issue. I lean towards uh, the idea that when we are saved, we are transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, and it is not me holding on to God, but it is God holding on to me. However, there are good God-fearing Christians that disagree with me on this issue, and they do have theological um, reasons for holding that position, and I think they're born-again Christians, and I'm not here to demean them or put them down. I would count them as friends. So that's my answer. Cool. Hope that helps, Christy. Uh, we get another pretty heavy question from Mike. He says, this week I had a non-Christian friend commit suicide. I want to reach out to his brother and be a friend to him, and all week I have been confused and heartbroken for the family who also don't follow Jesus. How do I share the love of Jesus with them when they're most likely wondering where God is in this tragedy? And how do I navigate telling them Jesus weeps with them, but not ignore the truth that their loved one is not in heaven? Yeah, so what I would say is, you know, minister to the living and, and let God deal with the dead. And that's just the reality. Because whatever decision your friend made um, in terms of his relationship with Christ, that's fixed, it's over. We can't do anything about that person's life. So, you know, is it beneficial um, telling loved ones who are hurting that their loved one is hell? I, I just don't think that that's beneficial. I think what is beneficial is focusing on the love that God has for them and how he wants to meet them in their pain. And the truth is, if your friend knew Christ, I'm going to say that there was a better chance that he wouldn't have ended his life in suicide. If he knew the peace from God, if he knew the love of God, if he knew the hope of God, I think there would be a better chance of him not turning to suicide in his darkness because there would have been hope. Now, that doesn't mean that Christians don't commit suicide. Um, you know, oftentimes people struggle from mental diseases that are very, very real things, mm -hmm. and they are held captive by the illness that affects their brain. So that can happen. But I would say this, people who believe in Jesus have hope. And so I just think this is a great opportunity to express hope and express God's love for them. And again, just be there as love and hope and, and serve them and care for them. And when you have an opportunity to share the gospel and, and the reason behind which you're doing that, that's when I would share that. But I think definitively saying someone is in heaven or is in hell is a very, very dangerous thing to do because the Bible says we're not to judge others' eternal states. Everyone will stand before the living God and only he knows their true destiny. And so we got to be very, very careful um, about saying definitively that someone is or isn't in heaven or in hell. Now, certainly if he rejected Jesus and said no, well, then we probably know. And I hope that's mm -hmm. not the case. I just want to make sure I understand you. You're saying go to and 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 maybe show love to the family, yeah. not necessarily with the intent of I'm going over there to share the gospel about Jesus, but just to show love yeah. and share the gospel if it becomes Yeah, in that instance I would just be as loving as you possibly can. And um, you know, I I've been in rooms with uh people who have had a loved one that's committed suicide, and you just need to be very, very delicate and very, very careful in those moments and hold them as gently and as carefully as you can. And I think in that moment, you are being God's arms and God's uh, love in his heart. And then if, you know, they ask a question, why are you doing this? You can just say, because I believe Jesus loves you. And mm -hmm. as bad as you're weeping and hurting, he's weeping and hurting more. Because the truth is, he loved their son more than they did. Yeah, He did. Mm -hmm. He died for them on the cross. He gave up his life for that guy. So God, God, God's love is, is bigger and grander than anything we could ever imagine. Right. 
So our last follow-up question comes from Rustin, uh, same guy that we heard from earlier. Two questions. From Facebook. I know. We like Nice Rustin. review and a question. Listen, yeah. you want to get oh, a, question a question on here? Yeah. Send it with a review and we'll... Uh, We'll uh, bump you to the top of the Listen, list. Right. No purchase necessary to win, folks. Oh, that's right. you, can, you can just ask us some questions. Purchases are only necessary to win your place in my heart. That's true, actually. I've experienced yeah. that. Because Justin's heart is not like Jesus's. Not yet. Yeah, that's okay, though. So Rustin asks, is there a version of the Bible or a book that you would recommend to study more and better understand what the Bible is saying? Sometimes it's kind of hard to understand what Jesus is really saying and how to apply that in today's time. Yeah, so here, here's my, my thinking on that. The first thing is, is worry about the scriptures you do understand. Focus on those first. A lot of people get caught up on what they don't understand. Focus on what you do understand. Start there. As you continue to study the Bible and you grow in your faith, you will understand more and more about the Bible. Having said that, I'm still learning about things. And so what do I do? I study commentary. So what's a great commentary to start studying the Bible? Really quick, what is a commentary? A commentary is a a scholar who comments on scripture. So that's where where it comes from. So uh, a scholar is going to know the background, he's going to know the language, the culture, or she, they're going to know things that you and I would never know. They spend their whole life, many of them studying just one or two books of the Bible, and they write a commentary giving us their comments on the background of the story. And a great place to start is the NIV application commentary. I will tweet this out um, today. Uh, so that you can download it. I think it's great because what it does is it takes the historical context and it helps us understand how to live it out in our present day culture. And it's a great, great place to start. Just remember commentaries are not inspired by God uh, and they are subject to uh, theological error, personal preferences, you know, the author's own understanding. Only the word of God is inspired. And so um, I think it's a great tool, but it's not scripture. So that's where I would go. Um, And I, I have a couple of those I know a couple of the authors that have written for them, great guys and great women who who love God and are brilliant. Mm-hmm. So, when it comes to particular translations for reading the Bible, you would you probably recommend the New Living Translation? Yeah, and, and that's why I use it. I think the New Living Translation is um, what the New Living Translation tries to do is it tries to interpret it for us. So, um, translations do one of two things: they interpret word for word or phrase for phrase. And so, the NLT is interpreting phrase for phrase so that we don't have to do a lot of the work. Because sometimes if you interpret it word for word, you have to look up what the English word means because you don't know. Yeah. yeah, like one of my favorite English words is bereft. And it's like, what the heck does that mean? So mm-hmm. look that up, Google that, that'll be fun. Um, why not just translate it, you know, missing or absent? Because mm-hmm. um, then I know what those things, I know what those words mean. Right. Cool. Well, excellent. Let's jump into questions from Acts chapter 14. But of course, if you've got questions from past shows, from any uh, other tough questions about the Bible, and you want to send those in, uh, please do so. Find us on Facebook, The Debrief Podcast. Send us a message. We'll get them on the show. Let's jump into Acts chapter 14 with Paul and Barnabas kicking off an excellent adventure. That's right. So in verses 1 through 4, it says that in Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went to the Jewish synagogue and preached with such power that a great number of both Jews and Greeks became believers. Some of the Jews, however, spurned God's message and poisoned the minds of the Gentiles against Paul and Barnabas. So it seems like, once again, like Paul's receiving the most opposition from Jewish people. Why does he always still approach them first? Yeah, so, well, last week he said, I'm done, I'm done with you guys, I'm turning to the Gentiles. Mm-hmm. But the reality is God is not done with the Jews. God loves the Jews. They're his first children. He chose them from Abraham. He's, he promised Abraham that he would bless all of his descendants, and the Jews are a part of that. We are descendants of Abraham by faith. The Jews are descendants of Abraham by biological lineage. And so God is not done with them. God loves the Jewish people. We worship a Jew. His name is Jesus, right? A Jew died for us on the cross. The Jews reveal to us how to live for God. You know, it's the Jews, the Jewish people who teach us 
what it looks like to follow God. They give us this picture. So Paul uh, turns to them first, and any town that has a synagogue, that's where he goes first. That's where he starts uh, his ministry. What's amazing is, I love what it says in the text that he's such a powerful preacher. Like he mm-hmm. could convince people. Um, but Paul's words are not enough. And so I actually got stopped at the gym today. Uh, I was working out at LA Fitness and somebody came up to me and said, Pastor Matt, you said something. And and I think this is important. When someone lacks faith, it is not just that they're missing something. It also identifies the presence of something. So a person who is hostile to the gospel. It's not just that they lack faith, but they have the presence of darkness in their life. And so that's these individuals that are chasing Paul down. It says in the NLT, poisoning their minds. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They Their minds have been darkened by the prince of the power of you know darkness. Uh, they are enemies to the cross of Christ, and they are against God. And And that's what's so tragic here. And so we need to we need to realize that, man, some people are going to be hostile to the gospel, and they are going to do us great harm, and we need to be aware of those. So, we've got to pay attention. Okay, so the continues on verses like three and four. Where Paul, the apostles stay in Iconium a long time, preaching boldly about the grace of the Lord, and the Lord proved their message was true by giving them power to do miraculous signs and wonders. But the people of the town were divided in their opinion about them. Some sided with the Jews, some sided with the apostles. So why are Paul and Barnabas staying here so long in spite of the opposition when in the last chapter they didn't seem to have a problem leaving at all? Yeah, the answer is we don't know because Luke doesn't tell us. But this is a textual problem because, uh, and some scribes in some of the text, uh, some of the uh, the textual evidence for the for the Bible. So we don't just have like one copy of the New Testament. We have literally over 22,000 copies and fragments of the New Testament all over the ancient world. And we try to put those together to understand, okay, what is the original text of the scripture? Um, and so, just to put that in perspective, you know, we don't even have one complete copy of like Plato's Republic, which is written right yeah. around the same period of time, but we we all assume that it's textually accurate. So, we have literally over 20,000 different copies and pieces of the New Testament. And so, some scribes try to change this here because it doesn't make sense. They were persecuted, mm-hmm. but they stayed. And so, I think that 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 the rendering that they, they were persecuted and that there was fierce opposition and they stayed is original because it doesn't make sense. And I think that we need to realize that, that sometimes following God and sharing our faith means we have to go through hardship. And so I talk about this all the time, that Christians assume that open doors mean God's will Mm -hmm. and that closed doors or doors being thrown on you means not God's will. And we just need to understand that sometimes the way that God works the most powerfully is when we go through difficulty. And so Paul and Barnabas stay in Iconium and they preach in spite of the difficulties. And so I just think about Sandals Church. Sandals Church would not be here if I simply had an open door policy, if I just assumed that God was always going to bless us. I mean, Sandals has been kicked out, thrown out. I mean, you name it. I mean, we were thrown out of a church. Literally, in the first two years of our existence, we had a church who threw us out of their building. They gave us literally three weeks notice. They said, in three weeks, Sandals has no place to meet because they they were done with us. Mm -hmm. And you say, well, God closed that door. I need to go plant a church somewhere else. No, we worked through it and we were able to um, endure. And I think Sandals grew and was better for it. And so we just got to remember that, that just because something's hard doesn't mean that God hasn't called you to do it. I mean, sometimes, you know, pain and suffering is a gift that God has given us to bring out the gem that's inside. So uh, Job says this, "When when when I finish my trial, he says, I will come forth as gold. So he knows he's going to be better. He doesn't want to go through what he's going through. And that's Mm -hmm. the story of Job. But he knows that in the end, he's going to be better for it. And so oftentimes, when we go through suffering, we go through hardships, God is sifting 
the things in our life that we need to let go of so that, uh, you know, think about, you know, when you gold mine, right? You sift through the dirt to find the gold. And so suffering is this tool that allows us to sift away those things in our lives that God wants to take away so that what we what we want to hold on to is left. And that's what happens there. And so Paul and Barnabas and the church has to hold on to the gospel and their faith. And the town was divided. Some people are for them, some people are against them. And that's where we are today in America. Some are for us, some are against us, but we need to stay here. Mm-hmm. We can't just go to India. Our first mission and priority is here in Southern California. Right. So then it says that then a mob of Gentiles and Jews, along with their leaders, decided to attack and stone them. When the apostles learned of it, they fled to the region of Lyconia, to the towns of Lystra and Derb, their surrounding area, and there they preached the good news. So is all this moving to different towns just on a whim, like let's just get to the next place as quickly as possible, or are they looking for specific places with like a strategy in mind? Yeah, well, so the first thing is they were going to stay in Iconium, and so why did they leave? They left when they realized they were going to die, and Mm -hmm. so this is important. If someone's going to kill you, that's when it's time to leave. Why? Because you can't tell people about Jesus when you're dead. So that's what I would say to Good point. missionaries yeah, like, wise, is, wise you know, counsel. live to share the gospel another day. That's <laughs> what I would say. And so stay where you are until your life is in danger. And then I would say move so that you can tell, you know, share the gospel somewhere else. So there's not a specific strategy, but what they are doing is they're following Roman roads. So we live in a world where there's multiple ways to get, right. like if I'm going to go to Fresno, like I can take the 99, I can take the 5. I can go around, you know, um, mm-hmm. up and through Bakersfield, up through the desert. There's multiple roads. In the ancient world, Rome invented this thing called roads, paved roads. It was incredible. And that's one of the reasons why Jesus Christ came when he did. For the first time in human history, you are able to go from city to city on paved roads that are protected and safe. And so the Apostle Paul and Barnabas are traveling on these roads mm-hmm. built by the Romans. So isn't that interesting? The, the nation that killed Christ ultimately paved the way literally for the gospel of Christ to be taken to the, to totally. the world. Mm-hmm. And so when we think about, you know, why didn't the gospel go, say, to Persia? Why didn't the gospel go to India? There's one simple answer. Romans didn't build roads that way. Mm-hmm. Those were very, very dangerous regions. And, you know, R- Rome's empire didn't extend all the way out there. And so Paul navigates the known world or the settled world with the gospel. And right. so he goes everywhere where Rome does. And so it's a powerful, powerful tool. And so, um, you know, that's why they're doing this. But really what they're doing is they're intentionally going these routes um, and then they're going to make their way backwards, back through all these towns so that they can check on the church as they go back to Antioch to report on the mission and what God has done. Okay, so now in verses 8 through 10, Paul and Barnabas are over here in Lystra and Derb, and they come upon a man with crippled feet. He had been that way from birth, so he had never walked. He was sitting and listening as Paul preached, looking straight at him. Paul realized he had faith to be healed, so Paul called to him in a loud voice, stand up, and the man jumped to his feet and started walking. So, kind of have two questions here. First of all, is how did Paul know this man had the faith to be healed, and what exactly, like, what does faith to be healed mean? Yeah, so this is a really, really dangerous text, and we need to be really, really careful with it because it's used oftentimes to manipulate people in certain churches. So um, what some churches will say is, well, the reason you didn't receive your miracle is you don't have enough faith, which really what it does is it makes a person feel bad that they're dying of cancer. And I think that's a real unhealthy, incorrect theology. Look, you can have all kinds of faith, but the bottom line is if God in his will has not decided to heal you, he's not going to heal you. Mm -hmm. Uh, God is not 
forced to perform a miracle when you, you know, meet a certain threshold of faith, you know? And so that's the thing that's really dangerous here is, is once I get a certain amount of faith, I'm never going to face harm. I'm never going to face ill because the reality is Paul has an extraordinary amount of faith and he's almost killed. Mm-hmm. I mean, repeatedly. And ultimately one day he will die for his faith. Right. So did Paul lack faith? I don't think so. <laughs> okay. He had to endure suffering and even death for the sake of the gospel. So we need to understand that. So I think what's happening here is the Apostle Paul notices that God is going to do something. And so what Paul is in tune with here is what the Holy Spirit was already going to do. So he sees God is going to do a work in this individual's life. And so how did Paul notice him? Because he's preaching the gospel maybe to a bunch of disinterested or confused people. But here's this paralyzed individual, this crippled guy who's locked into what Paul's saying. Mm -hmm. And that's what happens when I preach on the weekends. You know, some people, they think I'm funny. Some people think it's boring. You know, some people are confused. Some people are locked in, man. And they are hearing the words of God and God is speaking to them and they're, and he is going to do a radical work in their life. He may heal their marriage. He may lead them to salvation. You know, he may give them a, a special word or revelation, but they are, they are locked into what's happening and they are tracking. And I can see those people I'm preaching. Some people are looking around at the lights or whatever. Yeah. Some people, man, are just like locked in right on me. And I think that's what's happening here is Paul identifies that God was already doing a miracle in this guy's life because he was producing the miracle of, of hearing and listening, right? Mm-hmm. Um, God is doing a work in him that allows him to lock in on the gospel. And then Paul says, and not only that, but he's going to heal you. He's going to radically save you. And so he says, get up. And and guess what? Paul's right. So how did he know? He's the apostle Paul, man. Yeah. <laughs> he, he is used to listening to the Holy Spirit. Paul hears from God. And so, you know, I hear people say this all the time, you know, well, I'm just interested in the red letters, right? Just just the words of Jesus. Yeah. And and that's that's heresy, man. The whole scripture is inspired. What Paul is saying here and what's happening here is just as inspired as what Jesus says, because Jesus is speaking through Paul. Paul is Jesus's messenger. And so that's so dangerous when people say, well, I'm just interested in the red letters. Red and black are inspired. They're all inspired. Mm-hmm. It's all the word of God. And Paul is hearing from Jesus in a dynamic way. And the early church took the words of Paul in the same seriousness as the words of Jesus Christ. And so this guy is an extraordinary leader who met the resurrected Jesus, hears from the Holy Spirit, and he does amazing miracles in the name of Jesus. And it just shows God is with him. So that's how he knew. How can we, I mean, cultivate that kind of place in our life or that the ability to see and notice like Paul did. When you said he's doing his thing that he does in every single town, but he noticed God was doing something there. How do we how do we get to that place for ourselves? Yeah, I, I think that there's a natural spiritual giftedness. Um I think one of my gifts, and we don't we don't talk about this, and I've never heard anybody uh mention this as a spiritual gift, but I'm a noticer. Mm-hmm. I, I naturally notice things. I notice people, I notice um you know, differences in hair colors. I notice people's facial expressions. I notice hurting. I'm a noticer. Some people are oblivious to others. They don't see them. They live in a world consumed with self. And I'm not saying they're narcissistic. They just don't see people. And so um, I think every single day we need to say, God, make me aware of the miracles you want to do in people's lives around me and let me be a part of that. Sometimes it's saying a prayer. Sometimes it's helping, um, you know, a person in need. Sometimes it's saying a prayer or a blessing, and we need to notice those things, and that's what Paul is. So track with me for a second. He's preaching his message. So what is he focused on? You're, you've communicated before. Uh, you have to stand up on stage, Stephanie. You know, right? You're communicating, or you're focused on what, what you need to say. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. If you're not, it's not going to go good. Yeah. So Paul is super focused on the message. That's his primary purpose. Right. Mm-hmm. But in the midst of what he's focused on doing, so think about this in terms of you, you go to work, you're in school, you got to do the things you got to do. Paul's a professional preacher, he's preaching. But in the midst of what he does for a profession, he notices. Mm-hmm. And we need to say every day, God, show me the person that you want me to bless. Show me the person you want me to help. Show me the person you want me to love. And we have to notice those people. And I think it's in those moments that we will see God work powerfully through us and we will see God do amazing things. So when you come to church, notice the person sitting next to you. You know, some people hate shaking hands. Notice the person's hand that you're shaking. Some of those people are hurting and they're literally, this is their last effort to see if God cares, to see if someone noticed them. And, you know, don't just focus on God when you're in church, but focus on who God's focused on and look for those opportunities to minister. And sometimes it's just, hey, come to my small group. Hey, let me pray with you. Hey, let me check in with you. Let me see what's going on with you. You know, I'm not saying that you're going to say rise and walk. You know, I wouldn't start with that, but maybe, hey, can I buy you lunch? Can I take you to coffee? Are you okay? What's going on? Um, you know, Stephanie hangs out with me on the weekends and and you see how many people come up to me mm-hmm. and they can't even get the words out mm-hmm. and they just start crying. Mm-hmm. And what do they always do? They apologize, right? I'm yeah. sorry. And I say, don't be sorry. Mm-hmm. Don't be sorry for crying when you talk to me. It's okay. God's done something in your heart. God's moving in a certain way. Um, you know, and we need to notice those people. Like you and I were standing there together when the, the couple came up to me this weekend and her, her sister had died that morning mm-hmm. in a car accident. Oh. And yeah, and they're weeping. And here's the issue. Her sister's dead. Her sister had a 10-year-old girl. And she says, we don't have the money to drive to Arizona. We don't have enough money for gas to drive to Arizona and pick up my niece who now has no parents. Mm -hmm. Can you help us? Sure. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. You know, that's not a lot lot of money. We Mm -hmm. can do that. And we can help you. Sometimes it's noticing a single mom who's struggling and just saying, and, and, and just feeling, okay, God sees this single mom. He hears her prayers. How does God want to use me to meet her needs? And that's one of my hearts, man. I, I just mm-hmm. I love single moms. I, I, have, I have just a huge, huge heart. Not just single moms, but single parents. That's the hardest yeah. That's the hardest role. And my heart goes out to them. Because I think, you know, Tammy and I being parents, it's hard. And there's two of us. Mm-hmm. And we have, you know, we are blessed to, to be in, I, I think, the way God built marriage, which is a man and a woman. And why is that? Because we see things differently and we come at things from a different perspective. And you need both those perspectives to, to parent. And so my heart is for single moms and single dads. And how can I notice them and help them? Because they have unique struggles that I don't have. Mm-hmm. How can I bless them? So be a noticer this week at work, at school, at Starbucks, notice people. And um, I think you're going to see God do something amazing. Hmm. Is that a prayer that you pray kind of regularly The on yeah. this idea of noticing? Because I mean, you did that to me three weeks ago, right after we recorded, you said, Hey, what's going on? Yeah. And you and my wife and my counselor were the only three, you were the only person besides them to notice that something was going on. I think, again, you know, I think God has naturally gifted me to communicate. God has naturally gifted me to hear from him. And God has naturally gifted me I guess I should use the word supernatural. Hmm. God has supernaturally gifted me to communicate, supernaturally gifted me to hear from him, and he has supernaturally gifted me to notice people. It's just like all of us are, are good at some things and, and not good at others. So maybe we're naturally or supernaturally gifted at noticing. Some of us have to work at it mm-hmm. and not blow by people. That's when, when, when Stephanie and I were in India, mm-hmm. uh, that's the thing that I noticed about the Indian people. They don't 
notice each other at all. You're so right. They you know, so that's right. You went there too yeah, this summer. So true. They they literally do not see one another. Mm-hmm. It is mm-hmm. it's like no one else exists. It is bizarre. Um and that breaks my heart because God notices every single human being and every single human being matters and um people need to hear that. Hmm. I love that. That's a great prayer and uh I think I'm going to try and do that. Yeah, totally. Um, what's interesting now is we're going to look at the rest of the crowd right after this miracle happens and says that when they saw what Paul had done, they shouted in their local dialect, these men are gods in human form. They decided that Barnabas was the Greek god Zeus and that Paul was Hermes since he was the chief speaker. So the priests of the temple and the crowd bought bulls and wreaths and flowers to the town gates and they prepared to offer sacrifices to the apostles. So how is it that this guy has faith and Paul sees him, but everyone else totally believes the wrong thing right away? What happened there? Yeah. So here's the bottom line. And, and let me say this to everyone. The world wants to believe in God for who they think he is. Mm-hmm. And so what happens here? God does this amazing miracle. And so um, I think we're in Lystra right now. We're mm-hmm. not, in, so. we've moved on from Icodium yes. to Lystra. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we're in Lystra um, and they want God to be Greek. God is not Greek. He's not. And so here's the world that we live in our culture. Everybody wants to be, everyone wants God to be love but they don't want God's love to have any kind of boundaries. Mm. That's the American God. God only loves, God God loves you and is never going to ask you to change anything. That's not the God of the Bible. Mm -hmm. The the God of the Bible loves you and his love compels you to change your life for him. And that means change sexually, change financially, change emotionally. We are to change. His love is, is to transform and change us. And that includes repentance. That includes uh, a new moral compass. That includes not partaking in certain things. And we're going to see that in Acts 15. God's, God loves the nations. However, you know, don't sacrifice, you know, don't eat things that are strangled. Yeah. Don't eat things that are bloody. You know, don't engage in sexual morality. And we'll get into that next week. There's one more that I'm missing. But that's, that is offensive to the world. It is offensive to the world that God would ask us to change ourselves. And so that's what's so popular, you know, all this stuff on Oprah. It's just it's this big collection of like, feel good. There's no accountability, you know. That's not the God of the Bible. And so that's what the world rejects. The world rejects anything that where God asks me to change. Mm-hmm. And the problem with that is, that's who God is. Mm-hmm. Repentance, metaneo, means to change the way one thinks, acts, and feels. That's what metaneo means. It's the Greek word for our English word, repent. And so for Luke's gospel, how do we become a Christian? We repent and we believe and are baptized. So we repent of our sins, we place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and then we publicly, through baptism, declare, I'm a follower of Jesus, and I have repented, I am now a follower of Jesus, and I am identifying with these other people that are doing those things. So. so in response to the people's response, Paul and Barnabas, uh, seems like they kind of freak out a little bit. Verses 14, they go, um, they run out into the crowd, tear their clothing in dismay, shouting, friends, why are you doing this? We are merely human beings just like you. So there's already a language barrier going on between uh, Paul and Barnabas and these people. Is tearing off your clothes like a, a in dismay, like a Jewish thing? Or at this time in history, is just just like an internationally accepted sign for 
there is a problem here. Things aren't okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, first of all, yes, it is a Jewish thing. Okay. Definitely. But it also is a Middle Eastern thing. And so, um, you know, we're in modern-day Turkey. That's where uh, Lystra is. But it still had connections with the Middle East and Asia. And so, it would have been a recognized symbol of protest. Okay. So... They and so what it is is it's 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 a pretty dramatic symbol. Yes, yes. Of of saying this is not okay, and it's the only way. It's the only nonverbal way that they can get their attention because these people can't understand mm-hmm. what Paul and Barnabas are saying. So he may have had to preach through an interpreter. Um, and so, um, sorry, my wife just distracted me. She blew a kiss at me through the window. <laughs> She's a little distracting, but he I do may love have her. had to preach through an interpreter. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's the international recognized symbol for your wife loves you when she blows a kiss. So they they um they they rip their clothes so that they know, oh whoa, these guys aren't okay with this. Mm-hmm. And um and it gets their attention. Mm-hmm. So then Paul and Barnabas respond to these people who are trying to sacrifice to them and they say that we have come to bring you the good news that you should turn from these worthless things and turn to the living God who made heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them. In the past, he permitted all the nations to go their own ways, but he never left them without evidence of himself and his goodness. For instance, he sends you rain and good crops and gives you food and joyful hearts. I notice here that they've mentioned that God did these things in the past. So does that mean God is about to change how he approaches the nations? Yeah, absolutely. Jesus indicates a change. So in the past, God allowed human beings to be ignorant so that they could experience really the fullness of the judgment for their sins. So, right, go your own way, think your own way, think your own thoughts, worship false gods, do all of these things and see what happens. And the reality is when you worship any God but the one true living God, you're worshiping nothing or you're worshiping a demon, which is even worse. And so now he is saying, you know, no longer. In the past, I have allowed you to be ignorant. And so what's interesting about that is in 1 Peter 13, when Jesus Christ dies on the cross, it says he ascended unto Hades, or to the realm of the dead, and he preached to those in prison. Now, nobody knows what that verse means. I don't know what that verse means. Mm -hmm. But what I think it might mean is every single person who ever lived and died without ever hearing about Jesus got to hear the gospel, and Jesus preached unto them. So everyone has had an opportunity to hear this, this news. And from this point forward, every single human being is going to be judged by Jesus, past, present, and future, because he is the one who has been appointed as judge. So listen to the word we just talked about, right? Repent, metaneo. So he's preaching to a non-Jewish audience. So they're not going to understand the word repent. And this is, we got to be really, really careful. And this is why it's so stupid when you go to a football game or basketball game and they hold up a sign that says repent. Nobody even knows what that means anymore. Mm -hmm. Look at the word he uses, turn. Turn from your life of worthless things and turn to the one true God. Turn from your selfishness and turn from God. Human beings understand if they're honest, if the person is honest, not everyone is honest, but if they have some level of honesty, they understand that there is an element of selfishness in their life and God is calling them to turn from that. Quit living for stuff, quit living for things, quit living the rat race. And, um, you know, it's amazing. America has, everybody talks about how bad the economy is. We have more stuff, more time off, more rest. We have more of anything we've ever had. And look at, look at us as Americans. We're stressed out. We're, we're, we're literally depressed, mm-hmm. discouraged, we don't know what to do with ourselves. Why? Because things, living for things destroys you. Mm-hmm. Only living for God can bring peace. And so he is saying, turn from all of this materialism, turn from your idolatry, turn from your worship of sex, because that's what the Greeks did. They worshiped sex. Um, you know, I mean, they were just a sexually driven culture. Like everybody says, oh, the Olympics is so beautiful. Well, the men used to, the young men used to compete naked 
so that the older men could look up in the stands and identify one of the younger athletes that they wanted to purchase at the end of the Olympics. I mean, that was a part of it. It was a very, very sexualized culture, which is why it was so incredibly offensive to Jews because they didn't want to be a part of that. And actually, when the Jews were conquered by the Greeks, they were forced to participate in the gymnasium. Hmm. Isn't that interesting? Hmm. And so it was, it was a very, very sexualized culture. Um, you know, and we, and we, we can get into that. But, um, I mean, one of the things that was a normal, accepted part of Greek culture was an older man would mentor a younger man in a homosexual relationship. That was a normal part of Greek culture. And God is saying, you guys have to turn from that. So think about that. We think of the Greeks as enlightened. We think of the Greeks as um, this incredibly enlightened culture. And the reality is they were lost, man. Mm -hmm. They were absolutely consumed with sex. I mean, read Socrates. We always talk about how wise he was. Read when he talks about his lust for young boys. Ew. It, yeah, ew, is right. Mm. That's you know, they don't teach you that in school, right? They kind of pick and choose what parts of his wisdom. And God is saying, "Hey, Greeks, you guys are disgusting. Why? Because they're they're pagan. They don't know God. Mm-hmm. They don't know what it means to worship the one true God. God did not design your body for sex. God designed your body for Him. And so, sex must be an expression of your relationship with God. And so, that changes the way we have sex. And for the Greeks." That was going to be a challenge. As we will read once we get to Corinthians, it was a real challenge Mm -hmm. because they were really, really out there. So, wow, I didn't think about, I'd be talking about nude wrestling. (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. Well, okay, so I don't want to get too far off topic here, but in Romans chapter one, Paul seems to make a similar argument that uh, what you're saying here, that this idea that God is really communicating to us through the beauty and the rain and all these other things, is this kind of pointing in that direction? Yeah, so I think what we're seeing here is you're seeing a summary of Paul's theology. He's beginning to figure out. So this is really his first first true encounter in preaching with a completely un an unaware society of God. They know mm-hmm. nothing about God. And so mm-hmm. he's got to figure this out, right? He's a smart guy, mm-hmm. but he has spent sp- spent most of his time preaching to Jews yeah. and to God-fearing Gentiles. So what's a God-fearing Gentile? A oh, God-fearing Gentile is somebody who's already kind of thinking about following uh, the one true God. They haven't converted to uh, Judaism because they don't want to get circumcised and do some other things, but at least they have an awareness. Mm-hmm. These guys know nothing of God. And so this is how he's starting. Okay, let me tell you who God is. He is the God who created everything. And we see this in Romans as he writes his letter to Rome, who is the one true God? You have turned from him and you've stopped worshiping the creator and you've worshiped things. Mm-hmm. And because of that, when you worship things, according to Romans 1, God hands you over to a mind that does not work, a debased mind, a mind that is morally confused. And that's where we live today. We live in a world that's mind is morally confused. And um, it's going to be scary for our kids. Okay, so verses 19 through 20, Paul and uh, Barnabas are about ready to get driven out of Lystra. And it says, some Jews arrived from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowds to their side. They stoned Paul and dragged him out of town, thinking he was dead. But as the believers gathered around him, he got up and went back into the town. The next day, he left with Barnabas. So, I, kind of two questions here. First of all, are these Jews just kind of following Paul around like some demented groupies with a you know mission? <laughs> yeah, these are this is an angry bunch of uh, individuals. And so, you know, like I commented on on the weekend, you know, why is it that atheists are so passionate about removing crosses from everything? I mean, think about all the lawsuits, all the litigation. Um, I have a friend of mine whose church was sued by uh, an atheist from Denver, Colorado, and his church meets in Honolulu, Hawaii, and he was sued by this this billionaire uh, who backed the lawsuit from Colorado because he hates Christians. 
Why is it that they're so hateful about this God that they don't believe it exists? And it's because, again, this God says you must change. Mm-hmm. You must change your life. Your life is not right. And by the way, let me just say this as Christians, none of our lives are right. None of us are right. There's a bloody cross, horrific death of Jesus on a cross that says none of us are right. So we we can't be prideful. We can't be arrogant. We can't consider ourselves uh, better than everybody else. The reality is we're all a mess and we needed to be saved by Jesus. But some people don't want to hear that. And so um, what the Jews are mad here is that Paul is preaching this message that you don't have to become Jewish to get right with God, and that is not okay with him. And so this happens, you know, all throughout American culture. We've invited people to, into our church, but they have to become like us. They have to look like us, worship like us, act like us. And there are some things that we have to change. And Acts 15 next week, they will decide what those things are. But, you know, can you imagine, you know, if we said everybody who comes to Sandals has to wear flip-flops? You know, I mean, how ridiculous <laughs> is that? But there are some you know, uh, like Seventh-day Adventists for a time said you couldn't eat meat mm-hmm. to be a true Adventist. How ridiculous that is that adding things onto what people have to do to convert to Christ. And it's just tragic and sad. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, um, we don't need to add anything to that. So th- they're just, they're literally just an angry, angry mob and apparently a persuasive mob. Right, right. So mm-hmm. because these individuals are are able to encourage violence um, on a group of people that were, for for a moment at least, mesmerized by what Paul's teaching. Yeah, so they. This is crazy to me. They pummel Paul with rocks, drag him out of town, leave him for dead. It says believers come around uh, and just gather around him, and then he gets up and goes back into town. Like no big deal. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so Luke is a doctor. Why does he not make a bigger deal? That seems like it's maybe a miracle. Yeah, I, I think it totally was a miracle. Um, but surviving uh, a stoning is not nearly. I think. Luke doesn't want to take away from the miracle of the crippled guy. So he doesn't want to compete with that. So he's going to diminish what God did in Paul's life because, you know, he he, he did almost die. I mean, he was unconscious, clearly, probably yeah. bleeding from his head. Right, yeah. That's... Um, pro- pro- maybe not ble- breathing for a period of time. I mean, they thought he was dead. Mm-hmm. He looked like, and maybe that means, well, he's going to die. Maybe he wasn't dead yet, but, well. But he, he, he pops up, he's fine. He goes into town uh, to get some um, some care and probably some you know, some comfort, you know, maybe bathing his wounds or something like that. But then he, he bolts out of there because now it's not safe. So it says that after they kind of, so they've moved on now to this other town. Once they leave where Paul almost dies, they go to another town, make many disciples. And they actually go back to Lystra, Iconium and Antioch, where it says they strengthen the believers and says they encourage them to continue in the faith, reminding them that we must suffer many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. So what does Paul mean here? Or what does Luke mean here that we must suffer many hardships. Like that, the word must there seems like, you know, I've heard you mention God will use suffering. God will use hardships mm. to produce Christ in us. But this seems like suffering is kind of a requirement almost to actually be in the kingdom of God. Yeah. And so, you know, this is what I would just press on every believer. If you've never suffered for your faith, do you have faith? Hmm. Like there, there's suffer. There's two types of suffering. There's suffering from just living in the world, right? Things happen, car accidents, diseases, uh, jobs, you know, um, I remember a couple of years ago, you know, in 09, when we went through that horrific econ- economic collapse, and there was an individual who no longer goes to our church, literally said this. He was in construction, lost his house, lost his business. He said, why is God doing this to me? And I just said, what do you mean you? Millions of people are losing their homes. Mm-hmm. Millions of people are losing their jobs. Mm-hmm. This is what happens when, 
were led by poor leadership and, 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 and you know, poor economic policies and greed takes over. This is, this is the result of that. This is why we need to pray for our leaders. But he had personalized an economic collapse like God was targeting him. And I thought that was unhealthy. Look, we are all afflicted. If I'm on an airplane and it goes down, I am affected just like everybody else. So there's that kind of suffering. Then there's the suffering um, where I am persecuted for my faith. And I've, I've had that, where I have been called a liar. I have been called a, an idiot. I have, been, I have been screamed at in the parking lot of Home Depot. I've had, literally had to call security because I had a disgruntled person who was angry at me, screaming at me so loud on my day off while I'm trying to do home improvements. Why? Because I had confronted his wife about some things that she was doing. She was a leader in our church and he didn't like that. I was being persecuted for doing the right thing. Look, it was tough. It was difficult. And I don't like persecution. I don't like it any more than anybody else. But the bottom line is, in those moments when I am persecuted for my faith, that's when I'm becoming more like Christ. Okay, now now I understand. And that is essential for me understanding truly what it means. So John says it this way, when we suffer blood, when we suffer blood to stay away from sin, he says we have passed from death to life. Mm-hmm. When you, when, you, when you are at the place where you're like, okay, I'm willing to die for my faith in Jesus, that's when you know the work of God has been completed in your life. You're like, okay, I'm ready. And, and that's what we all need to work for because ultimately the Christian life is not about this life. I mean, there's blessings. I think there's peace in this life. But what Jesus is offering is eternal life. And he's promising that when this life is over, he will bless us forever. And so we just need to just embrace suffering. Things are not going to be easy. It, you know, I planted Sandals Church. People think, oh, it must be great. It has not been great. <laughs> it has not been easy. There are so many times where my wife with tears in her eyes has begged me to do anything else. Literally, go get a normal job. Do anything else because people are mad at us. People talk about us. People have ridiculed to us. You know, my kids have been picked on at school. I mean, things have happened because I'm the pastor of Sandals Church. And um, that's been awful and ugly. And all of us need to be able to identify some point in our life where we have been tr- mistreated because of our faith. And if that hasn't happened, you need to pray that that does because it will grow you and it will strengthen you. And so what Luke is trying to tell us is, look, this is the will of God to perform the work and to solidify the faith of Paul. Paul doesn't get to go become you know, the Roman emperor. He's going to die at the hands of the Roman empire. That is the completed work of Christ in his life. Now, it's not God's will that all of us die physically, but it is his will that every single one of us die spiritually. Jesus said this in Luke 9, 23, if any man would come after me, let him deny himself, pick up his cross and follow me. The invitation to Jesus is the invitation to the death of yourself. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I'm not asking this as a leading question. This is genuine. Is there a connection or to suffering for Jesus or you know, suffering or also making sacrificing? Like I'm thinking of people who are choosing a more difficult path. Yes. Like they give greatly to the church, community group leaders who are yeah, opening absolutely. up their house volunteering. Is there is is that a similar thing? That's a great question. Yes, there's a correlation between sacrifice and um, suffering. The two are in the same. So sacrificing is intentional suffering. That's what it is. It is the decision to suffer. And so, mm-hmm. like for example, my wife and I are tithers to the church, and I don't think that tithing is suffering, but but it has been a sacrifice. We are saying no to ourselves, to 10% of our income so that we can say yes to God. Now, some of you can't ever imagine doing that. It's what Tammy and I believe in. It's what I teach and encourage people to do. But some people just, they can't imagine literally living without 10%. And I get that. Some people are financially strapped and I understand those things. 
but then when we built this building, Tammy and I's goal was to double it. You know, so for a period of a couple of years, we were going to give 20% of our mm-hmm. income. And that was tough. Mm-hmm. Very, very difficult. And we've done it twice now to build the facilities that people see and they come to. So I think sacrifice is intentional suffering. We're going to cut back for a period of time so that God can be glorified and more people can come to church. So we're saying no to ourselves. We're saying no to our family so we can say yes to God's family. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a great, great way. Now, having say, said that, that's nothing like what our missionaries go through, right. where they suffer every single day, where their lives are on the line, they're threatened. You know, I met with a pastor when we were in uh, Mumbai, and he told me every single week, um, India puts police in his church, they're threatened, sometimes they're beaten. It's not uncommon to be beaten by police in India. That's something that's just kind of culturally acceptable. And so they're suffering. I think about, you know, some of our missionaries through our company that have died in Afghanistan and Iraq. They've been shot and killed and murdered because they are there to share the gospel, and that's tragic. And so that that's at a different level mm-hmm. than what I'm talking about. But sacrificing is a good way to train yourself to be ready to suffer for your faith. And I think that those are good things. And I think that learning to say no to yourself, anytime you can say no to yourself so that you can say yes to Jesus, you're going to be blessed in the long run. It may hurt in the short term, but in the long run, you're going to be blessed. You know, um, you know. So Tammy and I live in maybe a little smaller house. We drive a little less nicer car, whatever. I, every week when I walk into this church, I love knowing that my sacrifice was a part of building this place. It, mm-hmm. it, it's, it's, some, it's, it's one of the few things in life that I'm very proud of. Mm, that's cool. So. Yeah. I have another follow-up question on that. What are some ways to kind of go about that wisely? Because I think I've seen some people make bad decisions saying like, well, you know, like God's going to bring me through this or, you know, I'm choosing to suffer and sacrifice when really it seems like it's an unwise decision. How do we know when we're choosing to sacrifice and be selfless and when we're kind of just putting ourselves in a hard situation unnecessarily? Yeah. I think you have to be in solid biblical community. You have to have other people who can speak into your life and say that's BS, um, or that's the Holy Spirit. And, and, and it's going to be one of those two things, because I think that we all can lie to ourselves. We can all deceive ourselves. We can all create in our own minds what God is asking us to do. And you need other people. I cannot tell you how many times in the history of our church, someone has told me, I'm going to do this, even with pastors. I'm going to go plant this church. I'm going to, and I, and I know, I know that's not what they're supposed to do, mm-hmm. but they're not going to listen to me. They're not going to listen to me. And uh, that's really, really difficult. So let me answer that on the side of the person who's giving advice. This is what I say. So I've had people say, I heard from God and God has said, this is how I answer that. Because they're not going to listen to me when I say, no, I say, it sounds like you believe you've heard from God. And I would encourage you to follow that because if God has called you to do that, we're, we're going to see real quickly whether or not that's what he's called you to do. Um, if, if there's going to be harm to someone though, I say, listen, I strongly disagree. And I've had people, man, I've had people put me on blast because I spoke and I said, I don't agree. Because mm-hmm. I'm not intimidated by somebody who says God said. That doesn't intimidate me. Mm-hmm. It, for, for a lot of people, they don't know what to do with that. Mm-hmm. So, so people often use the word God said as a tool of manipulation. And I think that's really, really dangerous. We have to be very, very careful with God said. So how do I know when God said? Well, it says it in his word. But in the church... We need to we need to bounce that off each other and make sure are we hearing from the word of God and then we need to just really challenge somebody because sometimes people can just be being stupid mm-hmm. you know um, and, and challenge them to you know say no 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 that doesn't sound like God that doesn't feel like God I really really want to press against that but and I understand that's hard 
Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why a community group that speaks truth back in somebody's life is so important. Mm-hmm. That's why, and I know you don't, so many people in, in a community group are like, oh, I don't want to say anything. You need to say something because people's livelihoods are at stake. And um, I, I see people throw their, lives, throw their lives away all the time with stupid decisions and they say, God told me. Mm-hmm. Robert, is that helpful? Absolutely, okay. yeah. So it moves on and says that Paul and Barnabas appointed elders in every church. With prayer and fasting, they turned the elders over to the care of the Lord in whom they had put their trust. Then they traveled back through Sidia to Pamphylia. It says they preached the word in Perga, then went down to Italia. So we talked last week about how we don't want to rush into laying hands on people, making people leaders. And it seems like Paul and Barnabas are going all over the place. How would they have had enough time to really know how to appoint the right leaders? Well, it says they came back through. Mm -hmm. So what's happened here is they've preached the gospel. They've had to leave for whatever reason, either because the Holy Spirit was moving them on or they were persecuted and they had to flee. So now they've come back through. So here's the thing. They're going to come back through. And here's, here's the important thing. The church is still alive. They're still meeting and they're still gathering. So naturally, when groups gather, a leader will arise. And so what's interesting here is Paul and Barnabas don't allow the local church to pick their own leadership. That's interesting because in Acts 6, the church picks its leadership for itself. The church is not ready to do that. Hmm. They're not ready. And so that's the danger of new believers is you're not always ready. So Paul and Barnabas are superseding the authority of the local church and they're saying, hey, here's your leaders. And you know, Mm -hmm. uh, you and I have traveled together. I can pick out a leader quickly. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes the leader doesn't want to lead. And the person who doesn't have the gift of leadership wants to lead. And I'm like, that's the leader. Mm -hmm. There's the leader right there. And so leaders see leaders. And so that's what I would say is, is listen to a leader. You know, not everybody that you know, feels called of God or says, I want to go to seminary or I want to preach the gospel. They're, they're not always leaders. And, and oftentimes the leaders don't want to go to seminary. They don't want to preach the gospel. They don't want to step up because leaders do really well at their own life. So, so what I would say here is, um, I think, again, Paul and Barnabas are uniquely gifted by God. They've been uniquely empowered by the, the gift of the Holy Spirit. These are, you're talking about two of the most exceptional Christians who have ever lived. Right. So God has uniquely empowered them to say, here's the leader. Because I'll just be honest with you, I've gotten it wrong. Mm-hmm. I've appointed people too quickly and I've been burned. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, it, it, it's not, it's not easy. Um, I'm, you remember when I took you out to breakfast and said, I think you're supposed to be in ministry. Remember that? Yes. Yeah. And, and that, that was a little rough. We had, we had a little <laughs> rough patch there for a while, but you made it. You survived. You're still here. It's true. I eventually <laughs> came. Uh, okay. So this whole, the whole chapter closes up verses 26 through 28 says, finally, they returned by ship to Antioch. Upon arriving in Antioch, they called the church together reported everything God had done through them, and they stayed there with the believers for a long time. So Paul and Barnabas's excellent adventure is wrapping up here. What are the kind of key takeaways that we should be looking at from their first missionary journey? Yeah, here's the thing, and this is, I want to encourage the church, is people who nothing, know nothing about God will welcome hearing the gospel of Jesus. Uh, mm-hmm. Steffi and I had coffee yesterday with a, a young man in our church who is from India, and he is born and raised Hindu, knows nothing of Jesus, knows nothing of God, has no clue about any of the stories in the Bible, literally knows, never heard that Jesus died on the cross, mm-hmm. has become a born-again Christian. And Steffi and I were sitting down having coffee with him, and he was telling us his story, how moved he was that God would send his son for him. That was just amazing to him, mm-hmm. how God had given him peace, how God had given him hope, how God was changing his life. Um, he told us a story about how he had been in the process of stealing, and since he's become a, a born-again Christian, um, he realized that that's a sin. And he had actually, since he's been a student here, um, he had been stealing, robbing from a local store in Riverside. And he was convicted to go back to that store and, con- and turn himself in. Now in India, apparently, 
Mm-hmm. When you steal, you get beat. So he told us, he's like, I was a little worried yeah, that I, they were going to beat me. I'm like, we don't beat people in America <laughs> for stealing, you know, candy. But he was worried about that. And so he went and told this family that that's what he had done, but he had met Jesus Christ and he wanted to change his life and he was apologizing. And that family who also doesn't know God, mm-hmm. who are also immigrants from India to this country, literally said this, we want to know about this God mm-hmm. that would cause you to come back and tell us this. And she actually cooked him a meal. Mm-hmm. Wow. Like sat down. And had sat down, cooked him a meal and said, wow. we want to hear. And I think they're going to come to Sandals Church. So here's the thing is, there are people in all of our lives who know nothing about God. Find those people, tell them the good news about Jesus Christ. And that's where you're going to see the most fruit. Mm-hmm. Don't spend your time time trying to lead people to Christ who've already rejected him. Mm-hmm. Find those people who've never heard the good news, know nothing about God. That's where the Holy Spirit is moving. And that's what's so sad is many of us are focused on our friends, our family members who've heard it and heard it and heard it and heard it. And we don't say anything to the person um, who's desperately, you know, wants to hear the good news and is calling out. And so this guy shared his story, Mm -hmm. how since he was 15 years old, he was wrongly accused for a crime. Literally, he was punished for this crime in India, shamed by his father, and he didn't do it. Mm-hmm. So his whole life, he's been struggling with this. And now he hears about his father in heaven who loves him and has a plan for his life. And this has totally motivated and redirected his whole life. And now he wants to become a pastor and share the gospel. I mean, he's mm-hmm. that excited. It's powerful. Mm-hmm. And so just try to find those people who know nothing about God and share the good news with Jesus Christ. And you'll be blown away what happens. It's really incredible. Yeah. And what I loved about his story too is he's a brand new believer. Like you said, like he doesn't know, you know, a lot of the stories from the Bible. He doesn't know a lot. But he like has taken what he's learned. He's taken what he knows about God, and that's what he's sharing with people. Like I love that he hasn't like now spent years and years trying to learn and study the Bible. He's just taking the little bit that he's heard, living it out, and applying it, and telling other people about it. And more people are coming to Christ. Like that was really encouraging. Like I think a lot of us think like, oh, I need to get to the point where you know I can talk about the Bible like Pastor Matt does, or I need to get to the point where like you know mm-hmm. I'm perfect in my faith before I can start telling other people yeah, about it. And totally. I love that he has just taken like this little bit that he knows, and people are coming to Christ. Yeah, for it's it. awesome. So cool. Well, hey, this was another fun chapter in the book of Acts. I'm excited as we continue uh, to move forward through more of these excellent adventures. Listen, if you have questions you want to get here on the debrief, whether they're questions from the book of Acts or some other tough questions from the Bible, we would love to get them to uh, Pastor Matt's eyeballs and straight to your ear holes. That's a really weird way. Yeah, I'm going to come up with a new way to say that for next episode, guys. Sorry sorry about that. Pastor Matt looks so concerned right yeah, I feel now. like you sinned when you just said that. <laughs> it's possible. It's possible. I just was going with it. Remember how before you said when you're communicating, you need to really focus on the message? I just wasn't focusing on the message. At yeah. that well, I was noticing time. Pastor Matt and his inability to really oh, focus yeah, on what Even touchdown Jesus is a little worried. Yeah. It's true. Sorry about that, everyone. Well, here's the deal. In order to close things up properly, mm-hmm. I'm going to ask you guys to send in those questions to uh, us on Facebook, but also, Stephanie, do you have some just sweet, sweet inspiration you can drop on us before we close the show? I absolutely do. So I've moved out of the realm of Pinterest and into the realm of bumper stickers that I see while driving around Southern California, which mm. is always a winner. And today's is Wagmore Barkleth. I like that. I actually like that. I like dogs that tails wag. I don't like to be barked at. I actually hate barking. As okay. a human, what does it mean for me to wag? Hmm, I think it. I think it means to to welcome people into your life. That's what wagging means. That you are pleased by the presence of a person. Hmm. Barking means you want them to stay away. You're Justin is them. physically trying to wag yeah, right now, and it's a little I can't, disturbing. I can't help yeah, maybe I don't want you to wag. Yeah, don't like physically wag, but like wag with your heart. Mm. Maybe yeah. that was cute. Wag more, bark less. Yeah, you haven't seen that? No, You're like everywhere. Yeah. So Not cute. a big bumper sticker reader. Mm, I'm a bumper sticker noticer. Mm, I notice people. You notice meaningless phrases. 
There it is, folks.